Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, Reasons to Believe, today with a message titled, Whoever Believes. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want you to imagine that in some fashion, someone has saved you from death. Now, we've all witnessed accounts of floods, and once in a while, news cameras will catch someone wading out into the floodwaters to rescue someone who's trapped. Or we know of firefighters who enter a burning building, risking their own lives to pull out those who would otherwise have succumbed to the flames. There are numerous ways in which human beings risk their lives to save others from death. So imagine in some fashion, someone has saved you from death. Now, don't you believe that if you are that person, that a response is required? To fail to respond in gratefulness to your Savior is not just unacceptable, it's immoral. Acts of great kindness, indeed, acts of sacrificial kindness, demand a response of gratitude. Every single day when we wake up in our right mind, able to breathe and stand on our feet and have breakfast and do whatever the day requires, when this happens to us, we owe to God, who has provided us with the body and the strength and the day in which we live. Each of these things demand a response of overwhelming thanks. John 3, verse 16, the most recognizable passage in the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, yesterday I began a discussion of this very wonderful and profound verse of Scripture. I pointed out then that God is loving by nature. That is to say, it's not the object of his love that motivates God. Rather, it is the nature of his being that motivates God. That means that God doesn't love you because you're worthy of love. Rather, God loves you because he is a loving God. And furthermore, you can't earn his love. That's not how the love of God works. His love is his gracious gift, not something we earn or merit or deserve. Secondly, I said that when John 3.16 says that God loved the world, the term world is not a general reference to people. Rather, it's a reference to the world as that system that's dominated by money, sex, and power. God loved the people who are dominated by evil and rebellion to his purposes. And finally, I pointed out that love is an action in God. Now, yes, God does feel compassion, so it is true that God feels. But primarily, God's love is expressed not in what God feels, but in what God does. His love led him to send his one and only Son. Love came at a great cost, the cost of the crucifixion of the Son of God. Today, I want to say that while those three things are true of the love of God, the love of God is such that it demands a response. Just like the man who's rescued from a burning building must respond, for righteousness demands it. So also God's love demands a response. And with that in mind, I want to read the entire passage, John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, from this passage, I want to point out three important conclusions from this rich passage. The first is the question of what the love of God demands, that is, the demand for belief or faith. Second, that we consider the themes of judgment, condemnation that come up in this passage. How should we understand God's response to the one who does not believe in Jesus? And for that matter, what does it mean to be condemned already? And third, we must consider the reasons that are given in this passage for the condemnation of the failure to believe. Now, I must say, it sounds a bit shocking, doesn't it? I mean, after all, the passage seems to indicate that a failure to believe arises out of a hatred of the light and a deep, pervasive love of moral darkness. Failure to believe in Jesus, says John, is not because of intellectual difficulties with the gospel or with different presuppositions or a a different cultural and religious upbringing or even about a lack of interest. Failure to believe in Jesus, says John, comes from a heart that lives in moral blackness. And we really must consider that. And so you can see there's so much to discuss here. So let's start at the beginning. If God loved the ruined children of Adam with such super overflowing, abundant love, a love that came at the cost of his own son, how then must we respond? So the response, according to John, is belief or faith. John 3.16 makes a promise. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The idea here is, of course, that we're perishing until the moment we believe. The difference between perishing and obtaining eternal life comes to but one thing. It's about believing the gospel. That's the key. God does not invite you to repay him for his love. He does not invite you to sacrifice something yourself. He doesn't invite you to perform some heroic feat on your own. He does not demand that you do penance or repeated religious ritual. Instead, he calls you to believe in the Son. But what can that mean? Now, we've already seen, as we've studied John, that there is belief and there's belief. You know, while Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover, many of the people saw the miracles that he was doing and they believed in him, says John. But, says John, Jesus, for his part, would not entrust himself to them. He knew what was in their hearts. And furthermore, in John chapter 3, we've just encountered a man named Nicodemus. He's a member of the Pharisees and he's come to Jesus with the words, We know that you're a teacher come from God. Now, apparently, that kind of belief was not enough, for for as we've seen, Jesus told him that unless he was born again, he, he would never see the kingdom of God. So clearly, when John speaks of believing, he knows the difference between faulty belief or deficient belief and true belief. You know, in order to illustrate that, let me take you forward to John 4, verse 48. There we read, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's a word of reprimand. Clearly, Jesus thought a belief that was based on a continual conveyor belt of one miracle after another is not authentic faith, at least not the faith that leads to eternal life. Now go forward to John 5, verse 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So did you notice the difference between the last passage and this one? You know, in the last passage, the person believes because he or she has seen miracle. But in this one, the person believes because he or she is convicted or convinced of the truth of Jesus' words and and the truth of the words spoken by his father. That is, the person has come to trust implicitly in the words and, as we will see, in the promises that God has spoken. So think of it this way. All of us exercise faith in this world all the time. I mean, when I get on an airplane, I'm convinced that government agencies that oversee airline safety are doing their job. I'm convinced that manufacturers are being held accountable when they're constructing the airplane in the first place. I'm convinced that the regulations for training the pilots are being adhered to. See, I believe the word that is spoken. And so in consequence of that, I entrust my life into the hands of WestJet or whoever I fly with. See, that's what it means to believe in Jesus. We trust both what the Father and the Son have said, and so we entrust our lives into God's hands. Whoever believes in him means whoever trusts him to the extent that he both believes him when he speaks and acts on that belief by allowing the Father to direct his or her life. Think of it this way. When God loved the world, the world was the place of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Now the one who believes in Jesus abandons that and entrusts his or her life to Christ. We stop trusting in the way of the world and we start trusting in the way of the Father. And when we respond to God's love, we believe. We assume that God's a truth teller. We assume that he means what he says and we assume that he's trustworthy in all that he commands. That's why there's a distinction between the person who sees Jesus' miracles and believes that he's a teacher come from God, like like Nicodemus, and the person who hears the word of Christ and on that basis entrusts his or her life fully into the hands of the Savior. So when John says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, he means whoever entrusts his or her life to him will never perish. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Some of you know the story of St. Augustine. You know, before Augustine came to Christ, he lived a life of debauchery, drunkenness, unholy sex, 
wild living. But when Christ encountered Augustine, he believed. One day, Augustine was walking down the street and he noticed a woman with whom he had had an affair walking toward him. So he quickly walked across to the other side of the street, but the woman saw him and she called out after him. Augustine, it is I, she said. And he in turn called out, ah, but it is not I. And he quickly kept on walking. Why? Because he believed in Christ and not in this world. Look, we all believe in something, but the one who believes in Christ has eternal life. That's the offer. Believe in Christ. Now we come to our second point. That is, we have to consider the themes of judgment that run through this passage. You know, sometimes when considering verse 17, that that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, I mean, we often end there. But look at verse 18 again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You know, some of us are uncomfortable that condemnation comes from a failure to trust Christ to the extent that we entrust our lives to him. So, so let's see if we can unpack this very difficult verse. You know, if you go ahead to John 5, 27, we read that the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. And then in verse 30, the Son says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. So clearly, Jesus does judge. And if he judges, well, we've got to assume that judgment has got to include both exoneration and condemnation. And so at the outset, well, it seems like Jesus is contradicting himself. Once he says he doesn't condemn, and then he says he judges. So is he contradicting himself? Well, no, he's not. John 3 verse 17 says that he did not come into the world in order to condemn it. That is, that's not the purpose of his coming. It's the love of God, not the condemnation of God, that motivated the coming of Jesus. And furthermore, as we've already learned from verse 16, that whoever believes shall not perish. So the idea is that we're already perishing. And that fits so well with verse 18 that It really isn't about condemnation because we all already stand condemned. And that brings me to a very basic point about the gospel of Jesus. You know, every once in a while, I'm interested to hear a debate about Christianity, and invariably, Christianity's contentious claim comes to the fore. So, says the non-Christian, you believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Are you saying that faithful Jews who care for the poor or committed Muslims who faithfully pray and give alms, or observant Buddhists are going to hell just for not believing in Jesus. And then often the Christian will stumble. And that's because in our world, in which respect and a willingness to see the world from someone else's perspective, well, that's so very important. Well, you can see condemnation for all who don't believe in Jesus. Well, that seems to us to be intolerant. But look again at verse 18, most specifically the words condemned already. See, according to Romans 1 verse 18 and following, the entire world stands condemned for their sins. And according to John's gospel, we're all perishing. In verse 19, John will say that there is already a judgment, and the judgment is this, people love darkness. You know, according to John, Nicodemus, the religious teacher, and then in chapter 4, the woman at the well, the immoral woman, And then the paralyzed man in chapter 5, I mean, all of these people are sinful by nature. Whether religious or irreligious, our problem is with the righteous God. We've not been thankful as we ought, and we've all broken his commands. And furthermore, 
This world is his, and he and not we will decide what's right. See, the verdict is that neither religion nor good works nor anything else can deal with our inherent condemnation before God. Jesus came into this world to take away your condemnation. Think of it this way. Imagine you have cancer. You're dying. You find out that there's a new cancer treatment that can save you. Would you respond by saying, so you're saying that my vitamin regimen is not enough? You know, in reality, the question is not about your vitamin regimen. It's about what can heal your cancer. And in this context, the question is clearly this. What can take away your sin and save you from the righteous condemnation of God? For in truth, you are condemned already. Jesus comes as the cure for your sin. See, John 3.17 tells us that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The condemnation is already there. The world's like a condemned house awaiting the wrecking ball. The people of the world are like condemned men on death row waiting for the needle to be put into their arms. Jesus didn't come to further condemn people. He came to save them from condemnation. And that, by the way, is the reason that Jesus spent his time with some very shady characters, openly immoral sinners. He had not come to condemn them, but to heal them. And here's what's required. You have to believe in Jesus. That is, you have to entrust your life into his hands. And if you do, you'll not perish. Now to the third issue. Look again at verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works be exposed. The gospel of Jesus and his act of sacrificial love creates a problem. The mere act of refusing is evidence of moral evil. Or it's a morally evil act to refuse to entrust our lives into the hands of Christ. Not only are we condemned for our sins, we add to our condemnation by refusing so great a salvation. Let me tell you the story of a man who decided to go into an art gallery for the first time in his life. It was near closing time, but the curator decided he would show this fellow around for something told him this fellow needed some culture in his life. And since it was a famous museum, he showed him the great masterpieces of humanity. He saw the works of Picasso and Van Gogh and Rubens, Goya, Suzanne, Monet, Raphael, and others. They were splendid works, works that have captured the heart and the soul of men and women for centuries. There they were in all their splendor. But then the curator noticed that the man was becoming restless. So the curator asked the man if he was all right. The man said, well, I, I don't think much of your old paintings hanging on your walls. Fact is, I think they're dumb. Well, the curator responded, well, sir, I, I fear you completely misunderstand. These pictures are masterpieces of the human soul, and as such, they're not subject to your judgment. But your response to those masterpieces judges you. And so, sir, it was never about what you thought about these pictures. It's about what this art has exposed in you. <laughs> and that's how it is with Christ. If we should stand under such wondrous love and not believe, the very act of unbelief condemns us. It would have been better never to have heard the word of Christ than to hear and not believe. To put clearly, this passage says that the only reason we will not believe is because we would rather live in sin than believe in Jesus. 
It's darkness or sin or rebellion against God or the brokenness in our souls that makes us reject Christ. So can you imagine a a patient suffering with cancer and he says to his doctor, please don't heal me. I, I love cancer. My identity is tied up in cancer. Cancer and me, while we're a package, don't you dare take it away. And the doctor says, but that will condemn you. You know, darkness is an interesting friend of many. So many crimes in our world are carried out in darkness. Criminals can get away under the cover of darkness. People can't see them. Plans for crimes are also made in darkness or in secret. If you expose criminals' plans before they happen, well, they wouldn't happen. But darkness in our own personal lives is also a welcome friend to the human race. What I mean by that is that we all have our secrets, don't we? Tucked away where no one can find them are our thoughts that we've had about others, and so we're glad that we've never been exposed. No one knows. But there are other secrets. People we've hurt, fares we've had, money we've taken, lies we've passed off as the truth. Jesus came to take away your sin. You've got to give up your sin. You've got to let go of the darkness. And therefore, the decision to believe or disbelieve decides your eternity. But if we believe, verse 21 says, we come into the light, and then everything we do after that is carried out in God, for that's what believing does. We now rely on Him. We trust in Him to allow His works to be done through our lives. So come to Christ, believe in Him, and you will have eternal life. That's a promise that comes to you from the mouth of Jesus Himself. John, as you were uh, speaking today, I was thinking to myself, you know, what's really important here is that we understand what the term belief really means. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, I know that there are some people who think that belief is only intellectual assent. So, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, you know, it's it's curious because James says, you believe God is one, Uh, you do well, he says, But then he adds, the demons also believe and shudder. Well, they don't believe unto salvation. And so the point is that believing basically says, I believe that if I entrust my life into your hands, that you will do well with me. So it's a surrender of our lives into his hands. So I think everything from repenting of our own sins, we wouldn't do that unless we believe that we are sinful. So, you know, we have to believe God when he speaks to us. Thanks so much, John. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com.
www.cbcbc.ca.ca today.